Friends, this is the second in our series on the little book of Zephaniah. I only have trouble with my speech when I talk. (laughs) And this morning I'm going to have a little bit of trouble. (coughs) Now some were away last week, and so we better give a little bit of background (coughs) to fill you in. (coughs) The cruel and powerful Assyrians had overthrown the northern nation of Israel in 722 BC and then constantly harassed the small southern nation of Judah for over a hundred years. Now God sent faithful prophets to his people but we see that there was a period of about 50 years when there was no prophetic witness. Now several kings of Judah had disobeyed God's commands and adopted pagan Assyrian ways. This led Judah into idolatry and in Zephaniah's time something happened. A godly king was given, Josiah, and he introduced reforms to try and restore true worship and obedience among his people. Now God's message to Zephaniah is kept for us in that little book in the Old Testament. We read its message against a background of two fundamentals of the Gospel and of the Bible. First, God's unchanging purpose is to bless people, but they must trust and obey him. An unchanging divine principle is that blessings follow obedience and curses follow disobedience and people must make a choice as to what they do. (coughs) Zephaniah's theme in his little book is the day of the Lord. This is not necessarily a literal 24-hour day but rather it's a period of divine time when God, the Lord Almighty, intervenes in human history in a dramatic way to further his purpose for the world and its people in keeping with his covenants. Last week we saw that the brief introduction in the first verse told us two things about Zephaniah's family connections. (coughs) First he came from a royal background He understood the ways of kings and rulers and nations But he also came from a godly background And he understood the ways of God Then we started into what is the main part of the book About a day of judgment The first verse was the opening verse, of course, and the introduction. And it dealt with judgment upon Judah itself. The first paragraph, I should say, deals with judgment upon Judah itself. Now, it's surprising that God's people needed such a rebuke. But judgment would come upon Judah because of disobedience. The people chose to follow the pagan Assyrian idols. They adopted Assyrian ways. 
This would inevitably bring curses upon them because of their disobedience. Then there came another paragraph in chapter 1 about the great day of the Lord. In verse 18, this would involve the whole world and all who live in the earth, not just Judah, but a much bigger scene. The events described indicate that this universal judgment has actually not happened even in our time. Zephaniah therefore speaks of a specific day of the Lord for Judah and then another more distant day affecting the whole planet. Can anything be done to put things right with God when such times come? This took us then into chapter 2. And the first few verses of the chapter shine like a ray of hope and joy in what had been a rather dark and gloomy story. God gave Judah this godly king, Josiah, and a faithful prophet, Zephaniah, to call the people back to serve God, to obey him and to trust him to fulfil his purposes of blessing people. This gives us a clue as to how Zephaniah expands on his theme. Now after his little single verse introduction, he spends most time on the subject of disobedience and the inevitable judgment which it brings. But then he concludes his book with a little section and reveals how God fulfills his divine purpose to bless those who obey, bringing them hope and joy that's beyond this world. Remember, disobedience inevitably brings judgment, but obedience results in everlasting joy and hope. Now today we venture on and we finish the rest of chapter 2 where God has some more things to say about these important principles. We'll start at verse 4 and we find now that there are several more days of the Lord that affect other groups of people around the little nation of Judah. God's concern spreads beyond his own people and takes in other nations as well. So we turn first to uh, Philistia. And uh, we see on the map that the Philistine states were located to the west of the Dead Sea, bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Some key Philistine cities are named in this paragraph. But let's read about it, starting at verse 4. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Kerethite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. 
It will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Eshkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. Now inhabitants of these Philistine cities had created trouble for God's people. Remember David and Goliath. But Ashdod and Ekron would be struck at midday, which in their culture was a time for a siesta. So this judgment was likely to come unexpectedly when the people were dozing. Other centres would be deserted. The people would all flee. And that would allow Judah's sheep herders to move westwards and occupy those areas. In this way, God would expand Judah's boundaries. The Philistines. Now B, two more, Moab and Ammon. Looking again at the map, we see that these regions were on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now Moab and Ammon were originally sons of Lot and their descendants settled in these two areas that were named after them. So at verse 8, God says to these people, I have heard the insults of Moab and Ammon and the taunts of the Amorites who live and who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him. Every one in its own land. Now these people are likened to those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities which had been in the same general area in a much earlier period. The mention of weeds and salt pits in verse 9 suggests desolation, an area of infertility. Salt is always a problem in agricultural areas. Again, it is God's people who benefit here. The proud Moabites and Ammonites had insulted and mocked God's people, which really meant they mocked and insulted God. Now, in the New Testament, this was also a problem. Paul reminded the Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God will not be mocked. But these verses remind us that he will be worshipped. The paragraph ends with the general assertion that all nations will one day worship 
him. We go to the next group of people. And here we've got to look at a bigger map. Cush. And this is what we know of as the area of Ethiopia and Sudan. It was well south of Judah. And actually it was more than a nation. It was an influential empire of considerable extent. Kings from Cush controlled Egypt and neighbouring areas for a period. Yet God had just one brief sentence for this southern empire. You too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. Now military might, territorial expansion, extensive influence were ultimately of no account. This was a devastating lesson for these people to have to learn. Disobeying God would bring a terrible curse upon them. We move to the fifth one, Assyria. Zephaniah's attention was turned now to the north, to the world power of his day, the empire of Assyria. And we're told here in verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns because the roof's been taken off. Their calls will echo through the windows because there's no glass. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am. And there's none besides me. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists well Assyria had crushed northern Israel back in 722 BC and then put great pressure on the southern area of Judah but in verse 13 Nineveh we were hearing about earlier the capital city of Assyria would be utterly desolate and dry as a desert It's helpful if we know some little historical point here that this was surprising. For Nineveh was known for its extensive irrigation project. To give such a warning when Assyria was at the height of its power may well have seemed laughable. Yet, instead of cities and settlements, the people had all gone and there were only flocks and herds. The presence of desert owls in verse 14 and wild beasts in verse 15 suggest that the whole place had been abandoned. We know that Jonah had warned of the destruction of Nineveh in the previous century. 
But that judgment was averted because the people repented. But in time they again disobeyed and Zephaniah delivered this new message from God to them. In 612 BC, God used the Babylonians to come across and bring to reality this day of the Lord for Syria, Assyria. And soon, once uh, the capital city Nineveh had been taken, the whole empire crumbled. Well, that takes us to the end of uh, Zephaniah's chapter 2. Here were five people groups that surrounded struggling little Judah, Philistia to the west, Moab and Ammon to the east, Cush to the south, Assyria to the north. And this chapter reminds us that God is indeed the Lord of nations, as well as of people. We were reminded last week in chapter 1 that Judah, the surviving element of God's people or the remnant of God's people, was accountable to God who had saved their ancestors from Egypt and had chosen them as his own. Yes, that makes sense, but now other nations, whatever their history, were also accountable to the same God. But stop and think for a moment. Would the average person living in Ashkelon or going to work in Moab or shopping in Ammon or playing football in Cush or on holidays in Assyria, would they really understand that the hidden hand of God was at work fulfilling his purpose in the rebellious world of which he or she was a part. It's the Bible that provides us with important insight. There were forces at work unseen by the human participants and there were principles being followed that were not always understood by the people. It is when God makes his way known through his word that we begin to see the truth that lies behind such complex events as wars, social upheavals, natural disasters. But what of that divine purpose to bless people? we can discover some interesting outcomes in this chapter. Now the overthrow of Judah by the Babylonians in 587 BC was a distressing experience. The people of Judah lost their land. They lost their temple. They lost their king. Many must have wondered if they'd lost their God. But from another perspective, there were a number of faithful people caught up in those terrible events who retained their faith in God. 
They were the remnant that Zephaniah talks about. And they were sent on their way to another country, to Babylon, and they took with them their faith. Actually, here was a strategic missionary project which would bring blessing to another nation. Now God spoke through the Old Testament prophets like Zephaniah in the 7th century BC but the author of Hebrews tells us that in these days that is the days of the Hebrew people in the New Testament God has spoken to us again by his son Now Jesus did speak at length with his disciples when he was in Jerusalem and approaching his death. In Matthew 23, he condemned the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who had distorted and corrupted God's truth. He went on in Matthew 24 to outline some of the things that would still happen. He said, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. These words of Jesus were disturbing and challenging. Again, describing a bleak outlook. Nations would continue to be at war. Kingdoms continue to rise and fall. What are often called natural disasters would continue to occur. But it's God's word that gives guidance and meaning. Even when it's unsettling at times. Not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was an uprising against those who had chosen to follow his ways. Severe persecution caused many believers to flee to countries that surrounded Israel. We know from the history in Acts that this resulted in a dramatic spread of the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire and beyond. (coughs) Here was another example of a sovereign God at work bringing justice upon the disobedient but providing opportunity for other people and other nations to know and embrace eternal truth and divine blessing. God's word is for our learning. Key concepts have been presented by Zephaniah about obedience and Disobedience. And then Jesus in the New Testament, 
emphasises similar principles. The number of days of the Lord, a number of days of the Lord have happened throughout history. Maybe they're still happening for some. We saw in the New Testament that Jesus spoke about the future and its dark prospects. But again there was that ray of hope and joy. Matthew 24:13 Jesus said the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Alongside divine judgment stands the equal reality of divine blessing. Now do we begin to see some of these things more clearly? We must make our choice, a choice that will determine our eternal destiny and maybe the destiny of others. And Deuteronomy, that book that was rediscovered in the time of King Josiah and Zephaniah, set out the terms of the old covenant. One of the curses was judgment. But there was also the blessing of God's grace. The same is true when Jesus brought the new covenant. When writing about the day of the Lord, Peter says that God is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's purpose is to bless. But whether that becomes a reality is actually for me to decide. Will you think carefully about that? It's not God's purpose for me to perish. But that may be what I choose. But there is that ray of hope. Well, so far the focus has been on the reality of God's judgment for people, even those who may be named as his people. It's also true for nations. There is more, and the best is still to come in this little book. But we have to wait until next week. Now, seeing some of you were away last week, there are some copies of the notes for last week's message on the table, and then also copies of today's study. Well, let's bring our time together to an end with prayer, but don't close your eyes. Look at the screen and we'll pray this prayer together asking for God's help as we move out into a new week, into a troubled, perplexed, confused, bitter, angry, lost world. What will we do? Let's pray together. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant 
brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. Equip us with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you.